You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is David Guzik. I'm very pleased that you could join me today. This is our YouTube Live broadcast where on a Thursday afternoon, as I often say, at least it's afternoon for me, I'm very happy that we have viewers from all over the world, so I don't know what time it is in your particular time zone, but at Thursday at 12 o'clock noon, we come together and I answer your Bible questions the best I can. Uh, Not necessarily only about the Bible. Your questions could really be about anything, but I do the best I can to answer them. And we talk about the Bible. We talk about the Christian life. We talk about really whatever you want to talk about. And you submit your questions on the live chat of our YouTube stream. And they get forwarded to me by our moderator, Devin. And Devin is looking for the questions that might, first of all, have to do with the lead question, which I'm going to discuss in just a moment. Uh, or questions that might be of the broadest appeal to our audience. And I understand, we can't get to every question every week. I feel a little bit bad about that, but it's just the limitations of what we do. However, we do look over the questions from the previous week that we weren't able to get to, and sometimes we answer those. And that's what we're going to do today with a question from Stargazer147. And uh, before I talk about Stargazer's question. Let me just say welcome to our TWR360 audience. TWR stands for Trans World Radio, and it's that fantastic ministry that for decades has been doing a remarkable work in bringing the gospel and great Bible teaching for discipleship all over the world through shortwave radio. And TWR360 is their online presence. Again, active all over the world in preaching the gospel and helping Christians to grow in their Christian life and in their discipleship. So, very pleased to partner with TWR360 in this weekly question and answer time. Okay, here's the question from Stargazer147. Asked this last week in a question that we couldn't get to. What does it mean that those who are last will be first and the first shall be last. Is this referring to those that got saved? Okay, well, Stargazer, that's a wonderful question, and it's something that I really, in fact, like to talk about. I love this passage in Matthew chapter 19, going into Matthew chapter 20, where Jesus discusses this, and the statement, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, Uh, comes in connection with a parable that Jesus says. So, let's kind of rewind just a little bit and go back to Matthew chapter 19, uh, verse 30, where Jesus makes this statement. Matthew chapter 19, verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Okay, well, in what context did Jesus make that statement? Again, when we read our Bible, when we want to understand our Bible, context means a lot. And so, let's just go back to the middle of Matthew chapter 19 and see that Jesus speaks to the rich young ruler. Now, I'm going to answer this question, what what does it mean by many who are first will be last and last first? What what does that mean? I'm going to answer it in three acts, if you want to say. So, here's act one, Jesus and the rich young ruler. Matthew chapter 19, beginning at verse 16, and I'm not going to put these verses up on our screen. I'm just going to sort of summarize what's happening here, okay? In, in Matthew chapter 19, beginning at verse 16, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus. Now, Matthew doesn't call him that, but we put together from the other gospels that he was rich, that he was young, and that he was a ruler. And so, just customarily in Christian vocabulary, we call this man the rich young ruler, even though no particular gospel writer in totality calls him that. It's sort of putting together the record from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, the rich young ruler asked Jesus, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So, Jesus answered and said, keep the commandments. Rich young ruler asks, well, which ones? Jesus listed some of the Ten Commandments, and the rich young ruler replied by this. He said, 
all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Which you have to admit was a remarkable thing for anybody to read any of the Ten Commandments to you and say, yeah, I've always done those. Since I was a young boy, I've fulfilled these. You know, just, yeah, Jesus, I know what the Ten Commandments, I've done all that. Which obviously pointed to some emptiness in the man's life. This is what Jesus told him. If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, there's a lot I could say about that, especially regarding whether Jesus gave that as a universal command for all of his disciples or whether that was something specific for this particular rich young ruler. But the bottom line is this. The rich young ruler went away sorrowful because he was wealthy. The the bottom line was this. He did not want to give up his possessions. His possessions were his God, and he didn't want to give up his possessions to follow Jesus. All right, that's act one. Here's act two, the discussion between Jesus and the disciples. Immediately following the departure of the rich young ruler, Jesus says to his disciples, this is Matthew chapter 19, starting at verse 23, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that was a shocking statement to the disciples because like some of us, they kind of thought, well, you get to heaven by being one of God's favorites, and you can know if you're one of God's favorites on earth if you have a lot of money. So, so some people think still in that sort of very spiritually crude way of thinking, but they do. And so Jesus said, no, it's hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. It, Jesus, that's where he used the phrase, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. Now, the, the disciples responded, well, then who then can be saved? Jesus said this, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And we certainly say that it's possible for rich people to be saved. It's difficult. Riches present a real obstacle to the kingdom of God. But obviously the Bible gives us the record and we know from history there's, there are rich people who are marvelously saved And matter of fact, they use their wealth in a way that really glorifies God. Okay, now, when Jesus said this, Peter responded by saying, and to me, this is like the key statement. See, Peter said, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? (laughs) Okay, Jesus, unlike that rich young ruler, we've left everything. We're following you. We did what the rich young ruler wouldn't do. What do we get? It's a very revealing kind of statement from Peter. Jesus answered him like this. He said, you will be rewarded. And everyone who's given up anything for me, for my kingdom, will be rewarded. Jesus said a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But that's when Jesus says at Matthew chapter 19, verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last first. So catch that. Jesus made that statement in the context of reward that would be given to the disciples or to anybody who gives up anything for Jesus and his kingdom's sake. See, I I think the real point that Jesus is getting at here, the thing that we need to soak in, is Jesus says, God will absolutely reward, but the way God rewards is going to surprise a lot of people. And in that context, we come to act three in the answer to this question. We're all getting down, what does it mean that many who are first will be last and last first? What does this mean? Jesus gave a parable to illustrate this, and it's the parable of the workers in the vineyard. This is act three. The Act one was uh, the rich young ruler. Act two was Jesus's discussion with the disciples. Now here's act three, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And again, I'm not going to read this. I'm just going to summarize this for you. In this parable, a landowner, he owned a vineyard, needed workers to bring in the grape harvest. Something very familiar to the listeners of Jesus. Okay, so what did he do? He went to the labor line, the place where you pick up workers for the day. He went to the labor line early in the morning, let's say 6 a.m., to hire workers. And he agreed to pay those workers a fair wage, 
a denarius a day. A denarius was the common wage for a working man. It was just, okay, a day's work, a day's wage. Three hours later, he needed more workers. So he went back to the labor line. And he promised the guys at 9 a.m., again, three hours later from the first guys he hired, whatever's right, I'll pay you. Then, again, this is in the parable, this sort of a unproductive way to organize your work, but it's a parable, it's a story. Jesus says then another three hours later at 12 noon, he did the same. Another three hours later at 3 p.m., he did the same. And then another two hours later at 5 p.m., he did the same one more time. He hires people at 6 a.m., 9 a.m., 12 noon, 3 p.m., and then finally with one hour to go in the working day, he hired people at 5 p.m. And again, the later workers, the, the, the earliest workers, the 6 a.m. guys, he said, I'll give you a denarius, a day's wage for a day work. The subsequent hires, 9 a.m., 12 noon, 3 p.m., 5 p.m., all of those, Jesus said, or excuse me, the man in the parable said, whatever is right, I will pay you. Now, the working day ended at 6 p.m., and the landowner uh, hired workers at five different times. Now, let this impress in your mind. In the story Jesus told, some worked for 12 hours. I don't know if you've worked 12 hours manual labor, when the last time was that you did, but that's a lot of work. Some worked 12 hours, some worked nine hours, some worked six hours, some worked three hours, and the last ones worked only one hour, and then it was time to get paid. And we all would agree the 12-hour workers did a lot more work than the one-hour workers. When it came time to pay them, the landowner paid the last ones first. See this illustration here? The first will be last. The last will be first. The landowner pays the last ones hired first. And the workers who only went one hour, they got paid for a full day of work. You can imagine how happy they were. How would you like to get paid 12 times the going rate for your time? I mean, you'd be thrilled. The, the ones who worked three hours also got paid for a full day's work. Then the ones who got six hours and nine hours, they all got paid for a day's work. Finally, it came time to pay the first ones. The first ones were paid last. The ones who worked 12 hours were excited to receive their pay. Surely they would get more. But they received exactly what the landowner promised them, a day's pay for a day's work. Now, put yourself in the thinking of those 12-hour workers. How would you feel? I'll tell you how they felt. They were angry. They said it was unfair. They didn't say, oh, how wonderful it is that our one-hour brethren got paid the same as us. They didn't say that at all. They were angry and they thought it was unfair. And this is what the landowner said. He said, I'm doing you no wrong. I did exactly what I promised. And if you, and if I want to be more generous with others, that's no concern of yours. Don't be jealous because I am generous. That's essentially what the landowner said to the all day workers in the parable Jesus gave. So the conclusion now in response to Peter's question, what are we going to receive for following you? This is what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 20, verse 16. It's almost a repeat of Matthew chapter 19, verse 30. So the last will be first and the first last, for many are called, but few chosen. Friends, that's a big principle. That's something really important for us to remember and to lock on. Let, let me give you some principles to learn and apply from this. Number one, God rewards. Now, I regard the parable of the landowner and the workers as being one of the most wonderful illustrations of the grace of God in the uh, New Testament. Uh, however, it's not a perfect illustration of grace. Because what the generous landowner did was express his generosity by giving people more than they deserve. Now, that was for sure generosity. 
But God's grace operates on an even greater principle. Under grace, God gives not more than we deserve, but completely apart from the principle of whatever we might earn or deserve. But but anyway, back to the parable. This parable shows us that under God's system of grace, God rewards and God rewards in unexpected and surprising ways. It also shows us that God may reward those who seem to be undeserving. Now, God will never be less than fair with anyone. The landowner was not unfair to anybody in that parable. He gave everybody exactly what he promised. It's just he chose to be more than fair as he pleased. And that's how it is for God. God reserves the right to be more than fair as he chooses. Friends, we should never resent God's generosity to other people. Because at the bottom line, I use that phrase a lot, but at the end of it all, we don't want God to deal with us with absolute fairness. Friends, if God were to deal with any of us on the principle of absolute fairness, we would all go to hell. There would be no hope for us. But by the grace of God, he's generous to us. So what does it mean? The first shall be last and the last shall be first. It means God rewards, but there are surprises in the way God rewards. Look, in the world we live in, Who's first? The first. Who's last? The last. But God says, I reserve the right to mix it up. I reserve the right to reward the first, last, and the last first. There may be a lot of surprises in the way that I bless people, the way that I pour out things upon them under the system of grace. That's what it means. So I hope that's helpful for you there. Uh, I hope that it's just something, Stargazer 147, that helps you understand that passage a little bit better. And with that, we're going to go on to the questions that have come in now on our live chat forwarded. But before we do, I've got one more thing to do here. Excuse me while I get things a little bit organized. we got one more thing to do is that we simply want to... Again, forgive me for organizing things here. I'm going to announce something, and I'm going to surprise our team a little bit. So, uh, Annie, uh, Andrea, Devin, um, keep this in mind. We'll do this next week. Next week, since it's the Thursday right before Christmas, let's give something away. Let's give away one of these Playmobil Little Martin Luthers. Now, here's the one I have out of the box. And it's just a cute little Martin Luther. And I think Martin Luther was a great man of God that God used in a profound way. And uh, I like these little things, just little mementos, little things to think about. So next Thursday, we're going to have a giveaway. Uh, By the way, that's the Thursday right before Christmas uh, on, I'm thinking of the date today. Uh, I guess it'll be the 22nd, Thursday, December 22nd. 2022, because if you're watching this later on video, maybe it's already passed, but on the broadcast that we do live on Thursday, the 22nd, if that is the right date, the Thursday before Christmas, we're going to give away one of this. We're going to give away this one that I hold in my hand right now. It'll be a random drawing and we'll just mail it off to you once we figure out whoever qualifies for it. So you'll have to tune in next Thursday to the live broadcast to get this, and uh, maybe you'll be the winner of it. Okay, on to our questions here. Uh, Junebug presents this question, says, I've heard your thoughts on many different Bible translations, but I don't think I've ever heard your thoughts on the Amplified Bible. Could you share your thoughts on this translation? I think I'm looking over here to the Amplified Bible I have up there on the top shelf over there. Um, okay, Junebug, the ampli- when I was a baby Christian in the mid-1970s, for whatever reason, a lot of people in my circle really dug the Amplified Bible. They were like, man, this is it. This really explains 
Um, this really gets into it. it. It it'll take the nuances of the original language and sort of try to express them with more words. Because you know how it is when you translate between one language and another. There's often not a single word equivalent between one language and another. There's some nuance of understanding. And it's that way with the biblical languages, biblical Hebrew or uh, Attic Greek, uh, not, not Attic Greek, Koine Greek, Attic Greek's classical Greek, um, Koine Greek, it's that way between the biblical languages and whatever language we're translating into, whether it be English or Spanish or Portuguese or Russian or whatever it is. Okay, now, so you have this dynamic where it can be difficult to get an exact translation between two languages. So the Amplified Bible just felt the freedom to expand on things. So if the ancient Koine Greek word for belief could actually have more the sense of more than just belief, but to trust in, to rely on, and to cling to, that might be in the Amplified Bible. Instead of saying, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him, it might say, whoever trusts in him, clings to him, uh, you know, puts their faith in him, that kind of thing. Now, what are my thoughts? Well, it's a good translation. Look, there's no Bible translation that's perfect. None. They all have their relative strengths and weaknesses. Now, there are some Bible translations that are so bad that they should be avoided. They're not helpful at all. The New World Translation, put out by the Watchtower Bible and Translation, Bible and Translation Society, avoid it. Bible and Tract Society, um, avoid it. New World Translation, no good. The Passion Translation, no good. It's just bad scholarly, in a scholarly perspective, and it's bad in a theological perspective. Now, those are ones that I would say avoid. Now, there's other ones that I think you just have to take them for what they are. I'll give you an example. The Message Translation by Eugene Peterson. Look, if you want to read the Message Translation as your Bible reading, okay, fine, but just understand, say it to yourself. Every time you open it up, this is probably more commentary than translation. As long as you understand that. Because in the message translation, in in an attempt to sort of make the Bible read in kind of very dynamic, street-level English, Eugene Peterson takes a lot of liberties. And, and I'll leave it to you to decide where those liberties are justified and where they're not. Some places they are, some places they're not. So there's a category of avoid, there's a category of caution, and then there's a category of what? These are good. And I would put the Amplified Bible in the good category. Maybe not great, but but certainly good. So sure, read it, use it. I I recommend to people, especially if they feel like they're kind of in a slump, in a funk when it comes to their Bible reading. Try reading the Bible in a different translation. Look, look for a good translation, of course. And uh, I, I wouldn't hesitate for a moment to tell somebody, hey, if you feel like your Bible reading has become kind of dull and routine, why don't you break out that amplified translation, amplified version? Maybe it'll be helpful for you. Okay, Junebug, I hope that was helpful for you. Let me go into the next question here from Bob. I have a question for your Thursday question and answer on YouTube. Seems like prophecy gurus have all jumped on the bandwagon of a so-called Psalm 83 end times war. I don't see Psalm 83 mentioning any end times war. In fact, it doesn't mention war at all, but the nation's hatred for Israel. I've listened to your podcast on Psalms and looked at your commentary. You mentioned war, but in a historical context. What do you think about a specific future end times Psalm 83 war? Seems like this theory all started with Bill Solace's book a few years ago. Well, Bob, uh, let me just kind of cut to the chase on this. If you've read my commentary on Psalm 83, if you've listened to the teaching I've done through Psalm 83, by the way, I have verse by verse teaching through the entire 
entire book of Psalms, all 150 of them, uh, available on the YouTube channel. And I recommend that to people. Look, for me, it was a profound experience to teach through the Psalms verse by verse from beginning to end. And I think it's something that could benefit um, some of our hearers, some of our viewers as well. So uh, I recommend to you that Psalm series, either from the podcast or from our YouTube channel. So if I don't mention anything about the end times war in my commentary or in my teaching on it that you can get off the podcast or the YouTube channel, then, then I'm really not seeing it there. Now, the Bible does say, at least in my understanding, and when I say my understanding of biblical prophecy, I don't mean it's mine uniquely, mine alone, as if I'm the only one who believes these things, but I, I do just want to acknowledge that there is a variety of perspective when it comes to the things regarding the last days, end times things, eschatology. And Christians who are serious about the Bible can disagree on some of these things. But from my understanding, there will very clearly be a war against Israel and the Jewish people in the very last days. That there will be a ruler, a leader of the world in the very last days. And part of what he will do is uh, persecute, prosecute, try to wipe out the Jewish people because he knows they have an ongoing and critical role in God's unfolding plan. Now, I believe God will defend Israel. I think that's what the Bible says, not only from the book of Revelation, but from several Old Testament passages as well. So if somebody wants to read that protection of Israel as prophesied in the book of Revelation and several Old Testament passages, back into Psalm 83, well, okay, fine. But but I, I don't think that that's fundamentally what Psalm 83 is about. There are things that Scripture illustrates without really being about. Now, I'll put it to you this way. And again, I'm doing this without turning to Psalm 83 Look, you can turn to my teaching on Psalm 83 yourself. You can look it up in the commentary. You can look it up on the recorded teaching on the podcast or the YouTube channel. But but just to say this, Psalm 83 isn't about an end times war, but it is, uh, perhaps it could be applied to an end times war. I, I guess maybe that's what I would say about that. And uh, I must confess uh, that this fellow you mentioned, um, Bill Salas, I, I'm just afraid I'm unfamiliar with him. I'm sure it's my own, uh, you know, error here, but I, I'm just not familiar with Bill Salas. Okay, let me continue on. Uh, Joning, uh, Joning, I guess is how you say the word, say the name. Why did God defend, I think maybe you think demand a blood sacrifice for sin? Well, Joni, uh, the Bible says in Leviticus that the life is in the blood. And so to pour out blood is a way to pour out the life. And really, it's just that simple. It's not so much blood for blood in a direct sense, as if um, something needed to be done and I could, you know, make a little cut and bleed out a little bit and then that would pay for something. Oh, well, here's four or five drops of my blood. I guess that pays for it. It's, it's not technically that. It's life for life. And you remember what God said to Adam. He said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, they did die. The the principle of death was introduced into the world when Adam sinned. And because of that principle of death, it results in the eventual death of Adam and every human being with the rarest of exceptions. Uh, Enoch didn't die. Elijah didn't die. Those who are caught up with the Lord in the event described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, they won't die. But I mean, that's an infinitesimally small portion of the total of humanity. So we die. We're subject to death. 
Therefore, Jesus had to give his life to redeem our life. And every animal sacrifice where life was given for life, you know, the life of this lamb, the life of this bull, that was all pointing towards the perfect sacrifice that Jesus himself would offer. So that's what we're with here. Uh, The blood sacrifice is really this, this picture of the giving of the life. Foreshadowing with every animal sacrifice perfected in the life that Jesus Christ gave on the cross. Hope that's helpful for you there, Joni. Next question comes from Jordan. Asks, how do you deal with difficult people in your church as a leader? Jordan, I don't have the slightest idea what you're talking about. In my 30 plus years as a pastor, uh, I never had to deal with difficult people. That's a joke, folks. Um, It's a good question that Jordan asks because uh, we all deal with difficult people. And look, let's be very honest. Sometimes we, as pastors, sometimes we are the difficult people for others. We just have to realize this is is, uh, part of Christian living. And Jordan, what what I would say is, I'll say a few things. Number one, we shouldn't be surprised or, I don't know, uh, grieved beyond measure when there's trouble among believers. We see that in the very first church, the church of the book of Acts, the church at Corinth, the church at Philippi, the church at Colossae, all these different things. There was a real situation where Christians needed help in getting along. That's why Paul gives the multitude in his letters of what we might call the uh, one another statements, which is a great study for you to do. Just look up all the times in the New Testament letters or in the entire New Testament where the one another phrase is used. Love one another, bear with one another, forgive one another, be patient with one another, long suffering towards one another. All of those phrases presuppose some measure of friction. So, it's going to happen. There's going to be difficulty in people working together, worshiping together, living together, living the Christian life together. That's number one. Number two, um, many times, pastors and other church leaders cause more trouble for themselves because things that they should just ignore or pass by, they make a big deal out of. A life-changing chapter from a book in ministry was written by Charles Spurgeon. You know Spurgeon? This guy, Charles Spurgeon. He wrote a great book for pastors. It's taken from the lectures that he delivered at his pastor's college. And the book is called, the the book is called Lectures to My Students. The chapter is called The Blind Eye and the Deaf Ear. And I love how Spurgeon begins this chapter. He says, I've told you many times, he's speaking to his students, of course, that every good minister or pastor needs one blind eye and one deaf ear. And Spurgeon says, I've told you that oftentimes that's the best eye and the best ear that he has. So in that lecture, Spurgeon says, let me tell you what I mean by that. And I recommend anybody in ministry to read that chapter, The Blind Eye and the Deaf Ear, from the book Lectures to My Students by Charles Spurgeon. In that chapter, he says, look, there's just a lot of things that we should ignore. Now, please, not everything. The pastor and the elders of a church have a solemn responsibility to lead, feed, and protect the flock of God. And protecting the flock of God sometimes means confronting troublemakers. We see this throughout the New Testament, throughout the letters of Paul, throughout 
Peter's letters, throughout James' letters, I'm just doing a little inventory, throughout John's letters, in all the letters of the New Testament, there's some type of confrontation of a false teaching, of a false doctrine, of a false practice. So I hope nobody takes what I'm saying in a wrong way. A, a pastor or a leader in a church should not be allergic to confrontation, letting all sorts of bad things go by because they don't want to confront. But it is possible, and I've seen this many times, experienced it myself. We're by being too sensitive, too touchy, especially in a personal sense. Pastors can cause trouble for themselves. So Jordan, um, it's been said, I'm certainly not the first one to say this, many people have said this, that a good pastor, you know, needs the the heart of, of someone very close and near to God, a very sensitive heart, but a very thick skin. And that's part of what we need in the ministry. Jordan, that's a big question. I've only given you a very small slice of an answer, but I hope that what I've been able to give you is helpful for you. Next question comes from Adonis, who asks, Exodus chapter 40, verse 5 says, that the golden altar to burn incense was before the ark, while Hebrews chapter 9, verses 3 4 says that in golden incense pan was on the holy of holies. How do you reconcile these verses? Well, let me take a look at this. I'm especially interested, Adonis, in the passage that you say, Hebrews chapter 9. So let me go take a look at that. Hebrews chapter 9. Verses 3 and 4. Uh, verse 3, And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides of gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna. Uh, here's the best explanation that I could give to you here, Adonis. What, what this is really speaking of is that the altar of incense was right up to the veil. I, I don't know anybody that has indicated a, you know, a conception, a structure where the altar of incense was behind the veil. But being immediately adjacent to the veil and the pan that would be used to carry in coals from the live altar, the, the priest the high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement with that censer, filling the Holy of Holies with that uh, aromatic smoke from the incense. So the altar of incense was on the outside of the Holy of Holies, but the high priest carried inside the Holy of Holies the censer when he entered in to the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, when he entered into the Holy of Holies, in which held the Ark of the Covenant. So that's the best answer I can give to you there, Adonis. I, I hope that's helpful for you. Let me head on to our next question from Andrea. Is there any significance that Isaac asked for wild game and Rebecca sent Jacob goats from the flock? Look, there are people who seem to be able to find uh, intricate, um, what's the word I'm searching for, uh, analogies, uh, intricate applications, allusions. Uh, they, they can find all these metaphors in Scripture for anything. I don't really see anything significant there except to say that she knew that she could get a goat from the flock right away. In other words, she knew that it would take some time for Esau to go out and hunt the wild game because that's what his father Isaac wanted him to do. And she knew that we could get in there faster. When I say we, I mean Rebecca and Jacob could get in there faster by just immediately selecting a goat from the flock. They had those penned up right there. Just go get a goat. Let's prepare it quickly and take it in and she thought that she could season it and prepare it in a way that would make him think that it was the wild game. Besides, he was an old man. His faculty of taste and perception wasn't the same as it was when he was younger, all the rest of it. That, I don't see any great 
spiritual significance in it by analogy or, or by, you know, uh, typology or anything like that. I just think it was a very practical thing that Rebecca did. Next question comes from Chelly. Chelly asks, how should you treat scriptures that were written to the children of Israel, such as Exodus, Jeremiah 29, 11? Um, I think Jeremiah 29, 11 is one of my personal little hobby horses there in that one, Chelly. But you know, um, it's true that we must read the Bible recognizing that it was not, or much of it was not written immediately to us. Jeremiah 29, 11 is a perfect example of this. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Now, that was not spoken to uh, the believer directly in the 21st century. That was spoken to Israel in the ancient context of the judgment of the Babylonian conquest and exile And it was God's promise that he would not forget Israel, but that he would restore them. That's the context of Jeremiah 29.11. But, and friends, this is a huge caution I gave here, but, but, the principle illustrated by that promise of God to Israel is still in effect for believers today. I don't have a problem with a believer reading Jeremiah 29:11 and saying God first spoke that to ancient Israel and it has application to me. Anybody who doubts that, I would just ask you to defend the defend this idea that God is less merciful, less loving, less desiring of good for his people, that God desires all those things less under the new covenant than he did under the old covenant. Because Jeremiah 29, 11 was written to people under the old covenant. Now, it's true and we understand that context, but we say the same God who made those promises to Israel in their circumstances loves me and cares for me in my circumstance. So, I I don't have a problem with, with believers saying that was written for Israel and in some sense for me also. Now, Chelly, that same basic principle can be carried out throughout our entire study of the Word of God. We just go to the Bible and say, okay, Lord, um, who was this originally speaking to, but in what way does either that word directly have to do with some dealing you have with your people, Because in some situations, what God said to ancient Israel was just what he says to his people. And if we are his people in the present day, not necessarily excluding what God's doing among Israel, but we are also his people, then what does God say to us? But there's other things that were specifically given to national or ethnic Israel that may not technically belong to us, but they will still show us some principle from the heart and the character of God that we can apply and appreciate. So, Chelly, I, I hope that's helpful for you. Uh, going on now to the next question from Rick. I have seen where tests were done about the blood of Jesus Christ. I don't keep up with the latest discoveries, etc. I assume they took samples from the tomb, the cloth which they say was with Jesus. They supposedly tested the DNA, which proves the father could not have been human. Does this story hold water of legitimate, respected people, or is it a lot of generous science proving this? The claim of having his actual blood and testing it seems like it would be a miracle, but of course, obviously, I question it. I was wondering if you guys had any thoughts on it being possibly legitimate. Rick, I I have not seen these specific studies or news items or whatever it is that you mentioned. Uh, I, I, I would not, I, I would not embrace those. Let me give you a few reasons why. Number one, I suppose that this is from the Shroud of Turin. And the Shroud of Turin is very interesting. I do not completely dismiss the possibility 
that the shroud of Turin was the burial cloth of Jesus. Um, I, I believe there's some problems with it, but there is enough about the shroud of Turin that is genuinely unique from a scientific perspective that at least makes someone give some caution. But you, you would have to be certain the shroud of Turin is the burial cloth of Jesus. Number two, you would have to say that it would be possible to get a blood sample that could be genetically tested from the Shroud of Turin. I think that that's probably doubtful. Number three, you would have to say that such a blood sample could actually tell you anything. Again, without having seen the story myself, and and if I'm wrong on this, I'll apologize later, it, it doesn't smell right, so to speak, to me. It, it smells like something that's made up or maybe exaggerated from something else. So I could give all those reasons, but let me give you a, a, another one. It's completely unnecessary. I don't need a DNA sample from the blood on the Shroud of Turin to tell me that Jesus was born of a virgin. The Bible tells me that Jesus was born of a virgin. That's enough. I don't need it. It's unnecessary. And let me tell you, if people won't believe it when the Bible says it, I don't think people will believe it if a scientist says it with a DNA sample. So, Rick, just to be very straightforward, this kind of thing seems fanciful to me, uh, but I, I do have that reservation. Having not read or seen the research myself, I really don't know, but that's just kind of how it feels to me. Next question comes from Sally. Can you please explain Saul's tormenting spirit from the Lord? Don't tormenting spirits come from the enemy? Well, I I would express it this way, uh, Sally. Yes and no. The, The spirit that tormented Saul was not directly from the Lord, it was an evil spirit. We could even say a demonic spirit. That's the spirit that tormented soul. But it was from the Lord in this sense, that God took off the restraint and allowed that tormenting spirit to do what it wanted to do and come upon Saul. Friends, I think we have no idea how much God protects us from Satan and the demonic spirits that are associated with him, how much every day that God protects us from things having to do with Satan. We should be very grateful for that. And, and when a person is under judgment, like Saul, King Saul, we're talking about King Saul in the book of 1 Samuel. When a person is under judgment of God, God may express his wrath, his judgment against that person, at least in part by allowing them to be afflicted by demonic spirits. That is part of the judgment of God. Again, not that God is directly doing it, but he is definitely allowing it. God's behind it. It's just not that he's the first actor. Well, or he's not the direct actor. So it's both a yes and a no statement. And I hope that makes some sense to you there, Sally. Next question comes from Susan. Would you consider cessationists to be false teachers? How important is the issue of the gifts of the Spirit to the gospel message? Susan, I'll give you the way I would. I'll give you the terminology I would use. I would say that cessationists are wrong. I think that the term false teacher carries with it a connotation that I would not apply to cessationists, but they are wrong and their being wrong isn't good for the body of Christ. So it's not like there's no downside. There's no harm that comes from their teaching. I believe there is harm that comes from the teaching of cessationism. Uh, For those of you who are kind of new to the discussion that Susan and I are having, (laughs) we're talking about cessationism. Cessationism is the teaching that 
the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, uh, sometimes called the sign gifts, ended with the apostles, or sometimes they say ended with the completion of the New Testament. They're almost equivalent in some ways. That they ceased with that. And since that time, there are no legitimate, authentic gifts of the Spirit uh, in the sense of miraculous gifts of the Spirit. What what cessation is called sign gifts. Now, I, I want you to understand that when you read about the gifts of the Spirit in the New Testament, Paul never gives different categories. He doesn't say, well, here's column A, the revelatory gifts. Here's column B, the sign gifts. And here's column C, the practical gifts. He never does that. He just presents them all as a group, as the gifts of the Spirit. But what cessationists do is they carve out one section of those gifts, and they say, I believe without scriptural justification, those gifts of the Spirit are not for today. So, how important, this is what's interesting. Um, I, I believe that what cessationists do in practical ministry is almost always much better than what they teach and believe about the gifts of the Spirit. They'll go out and preach in the power of the Holy Spirit, but not acknowledge the fullness of that power when it comes to what they teach and believe about the gifts of the Spirit. So, just because a person denies the presence of the miraculous or what they call the sign gifts today, it doesn't necessarily mean that God still doesn't use them by the power of his spirit. God's very gracious that way. So it is an issue. It is something that um, I I think needs to be talked about. But I I don't think it disqualifies... I would not call somebody a false teacher for that, even though, let me say this, There's more than a few cessationists who would call someone like me who believes that the gifts of the Spirit continue to this day. They don't mind calling me a false teacher, but let me tell you something that Jesus said. He said that you shouldn't return evil for evil. And just because some of them would call me a false teacher, I won't return that evil. I'll say they're wrong, but I wouldn't use that phrase because of the connotation that it has. That's my perspective on it, Susan, and I just wonder, maybe somebody else would have a different perspective, but you've asked me, and I'm happy to give you my perspective on it. Question from Joshua is, how often should a person give supplication to God? Joshua, supplication is really just another word for prayer. It's interesting how many words there are in the Bible for prayer. Supplication, entreaty, uh, prayer, asking, seeking, you know, on, on the many different words in the Bible describe prayer or aspects of prayer. So there's a sense, Joshua, in what you're asking is, how often should people pray? <laughs> well, I, I'll give you two answers to that. People should pray regularly. Prayer should just be a normal part of your walk with God. So daily, multiple times daily, take time to pray. So people should pray regularly, but there's also a sense in which we should pray constantly. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the apostle Paul says, pray without ceasing. In other words, there is such a thing as an attitude of prayer, a mentality of prayer that basically says, I'm going to try to live all day long in a conscience sense of communion with God. I'm going to pray without ceasing. So that's my two answers. How often should a person pray? They should pray regularly and constantly. And just understanding that from the different senses that the Bible gives for that. Question comes from Psalm 18, 118. Will you expound on Galatians 5.3 as becometh saints? All right, let me take a look at this. Galatians chapter 5. 
I'm going to go to this in my commentary. That is Galatians 5, 3, where it says, uh, I think we might have the wrong verse here. Galatians 5, 3, as becometh saints. Um, and I testify to you. Hmm. I, I'm not seeing it there in that particular verse. Maybe, is it 6, 3, perhaps? Nope. 5.13. I'm, I'm very sorry here that it's that, but the Galatians 5.13.6.13. I'm, I'm very sorry there for your question there, Psalm 118. Uh, Galatians 5.3 just doesn't speak about that. Let me just take a look at it now in another translation just to make double sure here. Um, I'm going to look it up here in just the King James Version and go to Galatians 5, 3. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he's a debtor to the whole law. That's Galatians 5, 3 in the King James Bible. Uh, sorry, I just couldn't get to that question because the, the reference wasn't there. Thomas asks, can you comment on Martin Luther's book, on the Jews and their lies, where he denounces the Jews and encourages persecution. Thomas, what Martin Luther wrote in that work is indefensible. It's reflective of the very entrenched and violent anti-Semitism, Jew hatred of his day. If you go to Wittenberg, the city where Martin Luther lived and did his ministry and preached, if you go to the building where his church was, uh, the city church of Wittenberg, where Martin Luther preached, he, that was the church where he was a pastor and he preached at. On the outside, on the corner, there is a little sculpture built into the wall, like a relief is what you would call it. And... On it is a pig, a great big pig, and some Jewish people beside it. it. It was put there on the church as an insult to the Jewish people and sort of a, a warning, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, that people were entering into a Jewish neighborhood. I, I might be incorrect on that, but certainly it was done to insult the Jewish people. Since then... People have thought, especially after the Second World War, maybe we should take that off. Maybe that's so offensive, we should take it off. But they decided, no, we're, we're going to leave it remaining. And they put a little memorial down on the ground, kind of underneath where that area is. Sort of decrying the way that the German people, way back in Martin Luther's time, and up in through the 20th century for the way that they treated the Jewish people. It's it's very moving little place right outside the Stadtkirche there in Wittenberg. Luther's anti-Semitism is inexcusable, but it is complicated. In the beginning of his ministry, Martin Luther criticized the Roman Catholic Church for the way that they treated the Jews. He said things like this, and I'm paraphrasing. If it's a mark of a good Christian to hate the Jews, then what wonderful Christians we all are. And he reached out to the Jewish community where he was for evangelistic purposes to, to try to bring them Jesus. They were not receptive some people think that it was out of hurt feelings from having the Jewish community reject the gospel. When Luther kind of had the attitude, hey, the Roman Catholic Church has done it right. I'm going to come to the Jewish community in love. I'm going to bring to them the love of Jesus. And he got rebuffed, which, by the way, you, you would not fault the Jewish community uh, in Europe at that time for being suspicious of any Christian overture to them. Some people think 
because these writings that you mentioned on the Jews and their lies came out later in Luther's life. There's at least some evidence. I'm not trying to say that this is conclusive at all, but that he suffered from some dementia in his later years. And those tendencies in him that he had to speak so fiery, so, so, you know, I don't, violently in his words, those things were even more exaggerated as he was losing some grip on his faculties in his later years. So I think we do with Martin Luther what we do with a lot of people from the past. There was only one perfect man, Jesus Christ. And we acknowledge this terrible area in Martin Luther's theology. And we, at the same time, thank the Lord for how marvelously he used that man in that time and in that place. And we avoid something that I find especially distasteful. The sense that so many modern people have that we're so much better than the people of the past. I just think it's not true. And I think it's proud. And I think it's arrogant. The people in the past had their errors and blind spots. And to be sure, we do also. So as Jesus said, we should judge others with the measure that we would like to be judged by. Those are things I keep in mind. Um, Having an interest in Luther, having visited Wittenberg several times, uh, that's simply what I'd say about that, Thomas. And then finally, now our last question comes from Ryan. By the way, before we get to that last question, next Thursday, we're going to give this away. Random drawing. You got to join us live next Thursday. Uh, between 12 and 1 o'clock West Coast time in the U.S., we're going to give away this Playmobil figure of Martin Luther, the guy I've just been talking about. The guy that was um, a wonderful agent in the work of God, yet had some serious flaws in him as well. So we'll give this away next week. Okay, uh, Ryan asks, was Solomon redeemed? Ryan, I'll give you this answer, probably. Although... I can't say certainly. Let let me give you the reason to believe that he was not redeemed. Number one, um, because the closing of Solomon's life in 1 Kings is of an unrepentant idolater. That's what you see at the close of Solomon's life. If Solomon repented, the author of 1 Kings doesn't want us to know it because he never records any repentance from him. According to the record in 1 Kings, Solomon died an idolater. That's on the negative side. On the plus side, God made a promise, a covenant with David, and he said, I'll set up your son after him. And this promise included both Solomon, but then the ultimate son of David, which is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. I think both of them are in view. And and what it said is, I, I won't turn from him. I won't let go of him. I'm paraphrasing, of course. So that would lead me to believe that Solomon was redeemed. But I'll tell you, what God recorded about Solomon in 1 Kings is sobering because it gives no indication of his repentance. We hope he repented. We we take confidence in the promise that God made to David about his son, but we don't see any demonstration of Solomon's repentance. That's it for today. So pleased that you could join me. Um, Hope you can welcome back and join us next week where we will have this as a giveaway. So uh, Annie and Andrea and Devin, I don't know what you guys do to make it happen, but you just tell me what I need to do next week. And we're going to have a giveaway of this uh, Playmobil figure of Martin Luther, this very one that I have in my hand. And uh, I hope you can join me next week. And I hope you have a wonderful Merry Christmas. And finally, I'll say uh, Enduring Word is an organization that's supported 
by the generous donations of people. And, and if you'd like, please don't feel any pressure or manipulation, but we are in what we call our year-end campaign. If you'd like to remember Enduring Word in your year-end giving for the year 2022, well, we'd appreciate it. But of course, you, you may have other priorities in giving. God may stir your heart another way. I'm not here to try to sell you or pressure you, but it, if God were to so move your heart, it's always appreciated. God bless you, and thank you for joining us today. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.